So that's John chapter 15, verses 1 to 17. I am the true vine, and my father is the gardener. He cuts off every branch in me that bears no fruit, while every branch that does bear fruit he prunes, so that it will be even more fruitful. You are already clean because of the word I have spoken to you. Remain in me as I, have, as I also remain in you. No branch can bear fruit by itself. It must remain in the vine. Neither can you bear fruit unless you remain in me. I am the vine. You are the branches. If you remain in me and I in you, you will bear much fruit. Apart from me, you can do nothing. If you do not remain in me, you are like a branch that is thrown away and withers. Such branches are picked up, thrown into the fire, and burned. If you remain in me, and my words remain in you, ask whatever you wish, and it will be done for you. This is to my Father's glory that you bear much fruit, showing yourselves to be my disciples. As the Father has loved me, so have I loved you. Now remain in my love. If you keep my commands, you will remain in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commands and remain in his love. I have told you this so that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be complete. My command is this, love each other as I have loved you. Greater love has no one than this, to lay down one's life for one's friends. You are my friends if you do what I command. I no longer call you servants, because a servant does not know his master's business. Instead, I have called you friends, for everything that I learned from my father, I have made known to you. You did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you, so that you might go and bear fruit, fruit that will last and so that whatever you ask in my name, the Father will give you. This is my command. Love each other. This is God's word. Evening, everybody. Uh, my name's Phil. I'm one of the ministers here. Uh, let's, um, let's turn to God's word. I have to say, I've got to be honest. Um, I find these central chapters in John incredibly hard. They are so deep. And uh, in one sense, what we're doing is we're peering into the heart of God as we, as we look at these chapters together. But they are full of the most rich and profound truths. Great, wonderful, let's pray and then uh, we'll get into God's word together. Our Father, uh, your word is clear. But the truth about you is also profound. You're not a made up little God. You are the awesome one. You are above us and beyond us. And so we pray as we peer into deep things tonight that you would give us alert, attentive minds. We pray that you would give us discerning hearts to see truth. And we pray, Father, that we would grow in our understanding of who you are. Amen. Now, I've, uh, um, I've got a number of friends who've had interesting jobs. Um, one guy I know was a weapons officer on a nuclear submarine. So he's the guy who presses the button and that's the end, really, of everything, which is you know, quite a responsibility. You talk about at work. Um, and uh, they're on a nuclear submarine, they go off on six-month um, tours. 
not like a cruiser in the Caribbean, a six-month sort of uh, operational missions. And they're basically cut off for most of the time. They surface every now and then or come to depth so they can get um, satellite um, feed, giving them uh, their whatever their commands are. But basically, they're given all their commands before they go because they are cut off from the chain of command while they're out there. And um, famously, the standing orders are, you know, if they, if they surface and there's no communications um, a certain number of times, then... Uh, you know, there's a, there's a whole heap of things they do. Um, but if eventually it's, okay, um, we're cut off completely from Britain, then, then they have um, war orders. And one of the last things they check before they hit the nuclear button, um, lots of you will know, is uh, uh, they tune into the BBC World Service um, to see if that's stopped broadcasting, it probably means Britain really has been taken out, so it's time to, to retaliate with nukes. Um, which never sort of worried me too much until I met Aaron, who is... Um, should we say avant-garde in his musical tastes? And, uh, and he told me about, um, there's, a, there's a piece of music, and you know, BBC being BBC, they like these sort of things, by John Cage called Four Minutes and 33 Seconds, which is just silence. And so I have this, this terrible fear. I'm like, I really, hope that, <laughs> I really hope that someone's written in the command things, wait for five minutes. You know? I mean, can you imagine, you just hit the button and the announcer's, and that was a wonderfully insightful rendition by the London Symphony Orchestra of John Caden. I've just started nuclear war. Um, but it's a... I slightly digress. Uh, the, but the, it's really important, before they launch off on, their, on a voyage, they have, they are, they're basically cut off, so they have to know what they can expect in terms of uh, what communications they're going to get from um, HQ and what they should be doing when they're hearing nothing. It's, it's basically what you have to do in a nuclear submarine. And um, look, the, the truth is that for Christians, we're, we're in a weird position of uh, Jesus is not here. Our high command is not around. Uh, and in the central chapters of John, really what John's doing, or what Jesus is doing in, in, in John's gospel is he's telling us, look, what do you do when Jesus isn't around? And what should you expect so we, we know how to live and we know how to serve in the absence, the physical absence of Jesus. So in 1333, he said, I'm going and you cannot follow. I'm not going to be with you physically. So how do we obey him? How do we trust him? What do we expect from him? If, if Christianity is all about Jesus and he's not around, then, then what is it? You know, what is going on really? And in John 14, last week we saw, in one sense he said, look, don't worry about me not being there physically because I'm going to send my Holy Spirit and he will help you and he will teach you. So the Holy Spirit will help and teach while Jesus is not here. And then in John 15, if you like here, he says, okay, and what sort of relationship will you have with me by the Spirit? What will it be like? I'm not going to be here anymore. The, the disciples had had him physically there, living with them. He says, I'm not going to be here. The Spirit will come instead. Well, what on earth will that be like, Jesus? He says, actually, it'll be an intimate, deep, rich relationship. And here, in the first half of John 15, we learn that it will be marked by fruitful service and loving friendship. Fruitful service and loving friendship. As I say, this is deep, complex stuff. And Jesus weaves and interweaves various themes. But it does seem to, to sort of split roughly this way, um, verses 1 to 8 and 9 to 17. And that's how we're going to tackle it. So firstly, verses 1 to 8. While Jesus is away, we are to remain in Christ, the true vine, and bear fruit. Remain in Christ, the true vine, and bear fruit. Look with me at 1 to 8. Jesus says, I am the true vine, and my Father is the gardener. 
He cuts off every branch in me that bears no fruit, while every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes so it will be even more fruitful. You are already clean because of the word I've spoken to you. Remain in me as I also remain in you. No branch can bear fruit by itself. It must remain in the vine. Neither can you bear fruit unless you remain in me. I am the vine. You are the branches. If you remain in me and I in you, you will bear much fruit. Apart from me, you can do nothing. If you do not remain in me, you're like a branch that's thrown away and withers. Such branches are picked up, thrown into the fire and burned. If you remain in me and my words remain in you, Ask whatever you wish, and it will be done for you. This is to my Father's glory that you bear much fruit, showing yourselves to be my disciples. In the last verse of chapter 14, Jesus says, Come now, let us leave. And so it seems that everything he says from this point uh, to the end of um, chapter 18 is said while they're walking across the Kidron Valley and then up into the Garden of Gethsemane. All of which means that when you get to John 15, usually you have to endure a a misty-eyed preacher telling you about his trip to the Holy Lands and as he walked through the old town of Jerusalem, running his fingers over a vine growing against a wall, wondering, was, was this the vine that gave Jesus the idea to preach this word in John 15? The truth is it was dark. Who knows whether he could see anything? Um, What we do know, what we do know is that Jesus is not just picking vine because he walked past and grabbed a grape. He's picking up on a theme that is a massive, massive, massive one in the Old Testament. The whole themes of vines and fruitfulness run right through the Old Testament. So in Genesis 1.28, God's great command to humanity just after the world has been made was to be fruitful, to be fruitful, to increase and fill the earth. But mankind failed, disobeyed God, and instead of bringing fruitfulness to the earth, we brought curse and death. And so God chose one tribe, Israel, and promised to work through them to restore the world. And frequently in the Old Testament, Israel is described as God's vine. So Isaiah 5, Jeremiah 2, Ezekiel 15, Hosea 10, Psalm 80, and then Jesus' parable of the the tenants in, in Mark 12. Israel is the vine, but again and again and again, Israel is a fruitless vine. So in Isaiah 5 verse 1, God says, I will sing the song for the one I love, a song about his vineyard. And then in verse 2, he looked for a crop of good grapes, but it yielded only bad fruit. And now Jesus claims in the last of his uh, seven I am sayings, I am the true vine, the true Israel, the true humanity, the one through whom God's purposes will be worked out for the whole world. So God's people, he's saying, are no longer ethnically defined. You have to, to trace your lineage to Abraham. Anyone can be God's people now. Anyone who puts their trust in Jesus becomes God's people, open to all. Okay, so what is going on then? If that's the background to the image, um, fruitfulness in the vine and that Israel failed to be the fruitful vine, what, what, what is Jesus actually teaching in substance? Now, you've got to remember when you come to images and parables in the Bible, they're not like grapes on the vine in that you, the basic rule is don't try and squeeze too much out of them. <laughs> you just go for what is clearly there. They're not designed to be pressed to the detail. They're just designed to teach big truths. And here Jesus basically makes three points. 
He says, if we are to be the true, fruitful people of God, three things, we must remain in Christ, we must be pruned by God the Father, and we must be prayerful. We must remain in Christ, we must be pruned, and we must be prayerful. I couldn't squeeze a a first P in, sorry. Um, But remain, prune, prayerful. First, we must remain in Christ. Verse five, I am the vine, you are the branches. If you remain in me and I in you, you will bear much fruit. Apart from me, you can do nothing. The point of the image, therefore, is to stress we are totally, utterly dependent on Jesus and we are organically united to him. There is no New Testament image of what it means to be a Christian that uh, more stresses how tight our bond is to Jesus Christ. Do you know the, the most frequent description of Christian in the New Testament? It's interesting, increasingly I think people, when I, when I talk to people who call themselves Christians, they, um, they say that they would call themselves things like followers of Jesus, which is, a, which is a very important and a, and a true thing to say, but it is only half the truth. And actually the dominant image in the New Testament is different. The most frequent way that the New Testament refers to Christians is a little phrase that appears 162 times in the New Testament. In Christ. In Christ. Not just with Christ or for Christ or following after Christ, but in Christ. To be a Christian is to be in Christ. It's to be connected to Jesus Christ like a branch to a vine. And Jesus commands us to remain in him and says we will bear no fruit unless we do. Verses 4, verse 5, verse 6, verse 7. Okay, so how, how do we then remain? And given that the choice is remain in him or verse 6 be tossed on the eternal bonfire... Yeah, it's pretty important we work out practically, what do I do to remain in Jesus? The answer, I think, is given in verse 7. Do you see how verse 7 rephrases verse 4? Verse 4, remain in me as I also remain in you. Verse 7, if you remain in me and my words remain in you. Uh, Back in 8.31, Jesus said to the, the crowds who were listening to him, if you hold to my teaching, you are really my disciples. If you remain literally in my teaching, you are my disciples. Uh, Jesus is the word made flesh. So it is, it's no surprise that we remain in him and he remains in us by his spirit breathed word. There is no relationship with Jesus apart from his word, the Bible. We don't have a, a Bible knowledge here and a relationship with Jesus here. We relate to Jesus as the spirit speaks the words of the Bible to us. That's how we relate to Jesus, through his word. So if you want to remain in him, keep feeding on his word. Keep renewing your faith as you you reflect on his promises and respond in faith, trusting him for salvation and for everything else. To remain in him is to remain grounded in his word, reading the promises and responding with trust. We must remain in him if we were to be fruitful. Secondly, we must be pruned. Verse one, I am the true vine and my father is the gardener. He cuts off every branch in me that bears no fruit. While every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes. So it'll be even more fruitful. So as well as a vine, there is a gardener, a farmer, God the father. 
and he prunes the, the branches to make them more fruitful. Now, you don't have to be an expert in viticulture to get what's going on with this image. It is not a gentle image. Pruning is not a, a gentle activity. It involves hacking bits off. And I don't know whether plants have feelings, but people do. And so this is talking about painful things. And the truth is that unless you understand the three truths at the heart of verse 2, you will not last long as a Christian. You will not remain in Christ unless you understand and take into your heart the three truths at the heart of verse 2. Firstly, that God prunes all of his loved children. So expect it. It's not an odd thing. God wants us to be holy. And we'll be happy when we're holy. And so God uses hard things in life to change us, to break stubborn pride, to wake us out of a callous lack of love for other people, to reveal and, and then to heal our judgmentalism, our lust. It's not a gentle process. But if you're a Christian, God says expect it. Expect painful things to come and expect them to do you good, secondly. God does it for our good. God's not a brute, he's a surgeon. Both a, a surgeon and a mugger might wield a knife. Both of them might cut you deeply. But the mugger does it because he enjoys inflicting pain and wants to hurt you. The surgeon does it because there's a cancerous growth that he needs to cut out to save you. One is wounding you because he hates you. The other is wounding you because he loves you. And here's the truth. I have yet to meet, I have never met a mature, happy Christian who has not been through some really hard times and seen change in their heart as a result. I would love that it didn't have to work that way. It would be so nice if it didn't, but that is the reality of life in a sinful world with a sinful heart. But the wonderful thing is that the hardships that come to everybody in this world, and they do, in the hands of God are used for your good. So there will be pruning. It'll be for our good. And third and last, there is no pain-free option, I'm afraid. Verse 2, he cuts off every branch in me that bears no fruit, while every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes so that it'll be even more fruitful. It says the same in verse 6. If you don't remain in me, you're like a branch that's thrown away and withers. Such branches are picked up, thrown in the fire and burned. Going to the dentist hurts. It just does. Uh, once after a rather embarrassing incident uh, with a numb lip from anaesthetic and a prolonged bout of um, public drooling that I didn't realise for quite some time, I decided, right, next time I'm not having that humiliation, so I'll have a filling without anaesthetic the next time. Never again. It hurts. Uh, <laughs> But the problem is, um, I had to go to the dentist a lot because as a teenager, I was an idiot and I ignored all the things I was told and I drank lots of Coke Classic because we were living in the States at the time, which is like Coke, but because Coke hasn't got enough sugar in it, they put in a whole lot more. Um, so basically, it was like drinking, um, it was like eating sugar lumps and drinking acid um, combined. Very bad for your teeth. So I ended up with cavities that you could go caving in. They're just, my teeth were in an absolute state. And by the time it got to that, there were only two options. There was the pain of the dentist now or there was the agony of an infected root later. 
only options. There was no pain-free option at that point. And when you've got a sinful heart like I have and like I presume all of us have, there is no pain-free option to change. You see, the sinful habits in our hearts don't give up easily. They're deeply rooted in. We protect them, we bury them, we reinforce them. And so it takes quite a lot of digging to get them out. There is no pain-free option. And God is utterly committed to destroying all that is corrupt and wicked and foul. There will be nothing evil in his perfect new creation to destroy and ruin and bring tears and death again. Nothing evil will come in. And therefore, if there's evil in my heart, there are only two options. Either God cuts it out now, which will be painful, or I cling on to it, and when he burns it later, I'm still with it. But those are the only options. Cling to Christ now, let him cut it out, and we will know the joy and the freedom of eternal life with him later. Pruning is painful, but as John says, the alternative is a whole heap worse. This is why the Puritans... um, had this funny phrase of kiss the rod, they used to say. When seasons of suffering came, they would talk about kiss the rod. It's an odd phrase, but it just meant, look, when painful things happen, it's very bewildering. And we wish the pain would stop. But what we need to do is lean into our relationship with God and trust that he is at work for our good, rather than pulling back in bitterness and resentment. So if we're going to be fruitful, we need to remain in Christ. We need to be pruned. And lastly, we need to be prayerful, verses 7 to 8. If you remain in me and my words remain in you, ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you. This is to my Father's glory that you bear much fruit, showing yourselves to be my disciples. J.C. Ryle, the uh, the great um, 19th century bishop, said, Why do we have so little success in prayer? Answer, we have so little communion with Christ. The more we're soaked in his word, the more his priorities become my priorities, the more we will find ourselves praying in his will and knowing the answers that we long for. God longs for us to be fruitful and God calls us into this tight relationship and it has a purpose. God wants us to to know that he has called us to bear fruit our organic relationship with Jesus is so that we'll be fruitful. But what does fruitfulness look like? I mean, he's used the phrase, but he's never defined it. I mean, uh, if you've got a lime branch, then fruitfulness means you produce one of these. Hopefully lots. It's a lime, in case you don't eat fruit. I know some of you don't. Uh, If you're an orange branch, then it means you produce one of these, an orange. If you're a vine, hopefully it means you produce some of these, withered grapes from my car. Um, But that's what you do. You produce the fruit from the tree. So what does it mean to be a fruitful branch of Jesus, the true vine? Well, it means you produce things that fit with the vine. So he says in verse 8, being fruitful is to my Father's glory that you bear much fruit, showing yourselves to be my disciples. Our fruitfulness shows we're Jesus' disciples. In other words, he's saying, when you produce the fruit I'm talking about, it'll be obvious to be, oh, well, given what I know about Jesus, that must be one of his disciples. 
because the kind of stuff they do seems to fit with the stuff he did. The stuff they talk about seems to fit with the stuff he talked about. And central to Jesus' mission was his death on the cross to save sinners. That doesn't mean we go and hang on crosses. He's done that bit. But central to Jesus' mission was bringing salvation through his once-for-all sacrifice. And therefore, if I'm a Jesus kind of a person, if I'm a branch of his vine, I'll want to... I want to bring that salvation to others. It means more than that, of course. There's more to Jesus than just that one act of salvation. But it certainly doesn't mean less than it. And I guess it does challenge me again as a Christian. It challenges all of us. that I've got to find a way to be involved in evangelism. Now we're all different. Some of us uh, are really good at talking to our friends about Jesus. And we're reading the Bible with one or two of our friends. Fantastic. If you'd like to do that, there are lots of people here who will train you how to do it better. Others of us are terrified at that. But actually, we find it quite easy to just walk up to people on the street, um, as a group we're doing this afternoon, and find it easy to talk to strangers. Uh, Some of us find both of those terrifying. But actually, we find um, talking to people for whom English isn't a first language uh, gives a, a sort of bridge. And so we find Friday night at International Cafe a fantastic opportunity. But whatever it is, whatever it is, If we're Jesus' people, we'll want to be fruitful people. We'll want to be involved in his work of salvation, to be fruitful branches of his vine. So remain in Christ the true vine and bear fruit. And then secondly, uh, remain in Christ the true friend and love one another. Again, there is just an enormous amount in these verses. So I'm just going to show a few key things. Uh, They... The verses parallel the first section. You'll see that both end with verses about the fa- uh, praying to the Father in the name of the Son and having the prayers granted in verses 7 and 16. Both are about remaining in Christ. Um, in the first, it's uh, remain in him, the, the vine. In the second, it's remain in his love. And there's a sense, I think, in which 9 to 13 answer the question, okay, what's it like to remain in Christ the vine? What's it like to be part of him? And the answer is that it is to be caught up into a relationship of joyful, self-sacrificial love. That's what it's like. It's like being caught into a relationship, brought into a family of of self-sacrificial, joyful love. Let's look at it together. Verses 9 to 13. As the Father has loved me, so have I loved you. Now remain in my love. If you keep my commands, you will remain in my love. Just as I have kept my Father's commands and remain in his love. I've told you this so that my joy may be in you and your joy may be complete. My command is this, love each other as I have loved you. Greater love has no one than this, to lay down one's life for one's friends. So verse nine, let's work through. Verse nine, to remain in Christ is to remain in his love. And again, do you see that remaining in Christ happens as we hold his teaching? Verse 10, he remains in the Father's love by keeping his commands. And the aim of this is not sort of gritted teeth obedience, do what I say. But verse 11, it's fullness of joy. And the particular command that he's got in, uh, that he wants us to focus on, his central command to them, is to love one another just as Jesus loved them. And if they're in any doubt as to what the standard of love is, it is the way that I have loved you, he says. 
In other words, he's saying, as we keep his command of loving one another, we are drawn deeper into a relationship with him. We remain in him and we are drawn deeper into joy. Now, the observant here will notice that we, uh, we slightly skipped the first half of verse 9. But we needed to do that bit first to explain what's going on in 9 to 13 before we come back to it. So 9 to 13 ends with the standard of love, which is, as I have loved you, which is a cross-shaped phrase. That brings us back to the beginning of verse 9, a very important little statement. You see, a lot of us get confused when we uh, start getting um, a bit of understanding about Christian things. Uh, you see, it's very possible to think that Jesus gets a bit of a raw deal in the Bible. You know, the father, he just sends the son. The son has to obediently go and humble himself by becoming a human and then live a life of misunderstanding and mistreatment and eventually be tortured to death on a cross and, and not just physically suffer, but it is the son who will bear the just wrath of God against sin in the place of sinners like me. But look at what Jesus says about the father at the beginning of verse 9. As the Father has loved me, so have I loved you. I've never noticed that phrase before, but it is mind-blowing. He's saying, the sacrificial love that I'm about to demonstrate for you when I endure the wrath of Almighty God hanging on a cross for undeserving, wicked sinners, that's not a self-generated love. It's a love that originates with the Father and that the Father somehow shows to the Son before the Son shows to us. I do not know in what sense or how it is that God the Father has loved the Son in that way. One day in eternity, maybe we'll understand it. But the Son loves us the way the Father loves him. Now at this point, let's hit pause and remember the central purpose of John's writing. Um, The central message, rather, of John. That Jesus came to reveal the Father to us, to bring us to him. So John 14, 6, Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but by me. He has come to reveal God the Father to us. But that knowledge is not like the knowledge you get from reading a book or watching a documentary. To know the Father is only possible if we're brought into an intimate, rich, deep relationship with him through the Son. And that's why there are two halves to John's Gospel. Uh, John 1.18, no one has ever seen God, but the one and only Son who is himself God has made him known. And you might think that by this point in John's Gospel, he's done his job. Jesus has revealed God the Father. Uh, He's revealed the awesome nature of God the Father in works and miraculous power, you know, turning water into wine, raising Lazarus from the dead. Every day was a highlight reel, basically. I mean, Jesus just performed the most incredible miracles. And he's revealed the profound wisdom of God in his teaching, which even 2,000 years later is revolutionary. He's revealed the wonderful Trinitarian nature of God as we get to eavesdrop in in the relationship between the Son and the Father. But that is not enough. Which is why we need the second half of John's gospel, which is all about the cross. You see, two things happen at the cross that tie into this passage and that complete the way that Jesus reveals God the Father to us. First, we fully finally understand God's love for us when Jesus dies on the cross. A death for those who don't deserve it, for the wicked, 
the perverse, for the arrogant, the vile, the racist, the greedy, the utterly undeserving. It's only at the cross you really understand that God is a God of love as you see what he'll do to save us. But secondly, his death in our place, it doesn't just reveal him to us, it brings us to him because we're forgiven and cleansed by Jesus' death. And so now we can know God, not just academically, wow, what great love God has for us, but we can know him personally. As at last the pure, consuming, holy fire of a God says, come as my children. At last it's safe for him to live in us by his spirit and us in him. At last we can be branches of his vine. We can remain in him and him in us without us being destroyed. So do you see, uh, Jesus' ministry is about revealing God the Father to us. And even here in John 15, as he talks about the love that he has for them, he says, you need to understand my love for you is so that you know what the Father is like. But there's another thing to notice here, which... uh, which helps us get our heads around the love of the Father. And that is um, the emphasis on loving one another. You'll have seen it in verses 12 and 17. My command is this, love each other as I have loved you. Verse 17, this is my command, love each other. Why is that here? I think it's this. We grow in our understanding of the love of God, not just as we look at the cross and reflect on the amazing sacrifice of Jesus for us. We do. We grow in our understanding of God's love at that moment. But also, we grow in our understanding of God's love as we receive and as we perceive the love of the church family for one another. It's as as we see love made concrete in our family that we get concrete insights into the the love of God the Father. When church works well, we're peering into the heart of God. When church works well. Okay, on to verses 14 to 15. You are my friends if you do what I command. He's just said he's laid down his greater love as no one than this, that they lay down their life for one's friends. And you, he says, are my friends if you do what I command. I no longer call you servants because a servant does not know his master's business. Instead, I've called you friends for everything that I learned from the Father I have made known to you. I met with someone this week who's going through a a horrible season of basically self-inflicted suffering. And he said to me, he said, "Um, people keep telling me that I really need Jesus as a friend at the moment because everything else has fallen away. He said, but I don't know what it means. He says, I get Jesus is God, so I get that he's my king, and I know he died on a cross, so he's my saviour, but I don't know what it means. What does it mean to say Jesus is my friend? How would you answer him? Jesus explains what he means here. And again, it relates to this big point that he is revealing the Father to us. Now, let me explain. Jesus is commanding them to bear fruit and to be loving. And it's clear, he is the master. He does the commanding, we do the obeying. We are creatures, he's the creator. But, but what we have no right to, he then gives us by grace. He says, you're not just servants, although you do do what I say. You are friends. 
And the difference is, I no longer call you servants because a servant does not know his master's business. Instead, I've called you friends for everything I've learned from my father, I've made known to you. I was going to say it's a bit like the difference between Uber and John Lewis. You know, basically Uber, um, yeah, basically... There's no, they have no responsibility for you. Don't expect a pension or anything. But John Lewis, everybody, every employee is also a partner who shares in profits. It's, but it's not, that's not quite what his point is. The point is, we're friends because all that God the Father has revealed to the Son, the Son has shared with them. In other words, to get that Jesus is our friend is to, is to get that he doesn't just want us to obey him. He doesn't just want you to obey him. He wants you to enjoy him. Jesus doesn't call you, uh, be fruitful. Uh, sit down at the table and get, you, know, you get serving while I sit at the table. Jesus wants you to come and join the family and sit at the table with him. Jesus doesn't want you just, look, you're not paid to, to think and ask questions. You just do. He wants you brought right into the father's plans. He wants you to feel part of the family. That's what it means to say he is a friend. It means that he wants to know you, to walk with you, to be with you. He doesn't want your obedience. He wants you. And that's an extraordinary thing when you realize it's God saying it. It's a wonderful passage. As God shows us, that he's called us to fruitful service and he's also called us to loving relationship. And amazingly, he tells us that that there's a sense in which as we love one another as a church family, it seems to me that he's saying that we, we get more of who God is. Now, you might not think there's much you can do to help people here come to know God the Father better. But the truth is, it is as you love one another, as we love one another, that the concept of a loving heavenly father becomes concrete. As a church family, we are never so much like God as when we love each other in ways we don't deserve. When we forgive rather than take offence. When we do things without the right people watching just because... It's needed. When we give joyfully and generously. When we put ourselves out for other people. We are never more like God than when we are loving one another. And so I guess the Holy Spirit asks each of us tonight. Do your relationships here if you're part of the church family, do your relationships here tell others the truth about God the Father? Does the way that you treat people here who hurt you, who bore you, who have nothing to offer you, does the way you treat them, does it help the world understand that God is a God of love? See, it's here that the two halves, I think, of the passage really come together. Because it's not just in here that we grow in our understanding of the love of God as we love one another. But as the world watches, as uh, those who are not Christians come and join us, we bear fruit as a church 
as people see the love we have and want to know the Father whose love we're sharing. Francis Schaeffer uh, was a brilliant, brilliant mind, um, devastating arguer for the Christian faith, defender of the Christian faith, and he said love is the ultimate apologetic. I read something very interesting this week. Um, the uh, historian Rodney Stark, well-known um, uh, chronicler of the, the early years of the, the church in the Roman Empire, talking about how the church went from nothing, you know, 11 nobodies, to taking over the Roman Empire in a couple of hundred years amidst enormous persecution and preaching a message that made no sense to the world around. And famously, he talks about the, the way that the, the Christians loved um, the, uh, the, uh, the people around them and loved one another. And it was just devastating as a, as a critique of the Roman ethic, way of life. Uh, and it attracted people to it. But there's a very interesting um, side note to that uh, made by a, a writer called Robert Wilkin, who says, what's, uh, that's well known, but what's less well known is that actually at the time, in the, in the first 200 years of Christianity, uh, the Christians by and large lost the public debates. They, just, they weren't yet philosophically um, sophisticated. And frankly, I have yet to hear the, the atheist argument that um, stands up. Um, and uh, there are some brilliant Christian apologists who, you know, if it's true, then it stands up, and it does. But back then, they weren't yet very sophisticated. And so the, the equivalent of the Richard Dawkins of the day were winning the debates in public. Uh, the Christians weren't winning the debates in public. And yet, people were still becoming Christians by their droves. And the reason, Wilkins says, is although they were losing the intellectual debates, people were won by the love to the God of love. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the truths that Jesus teaches here. Father, we thank you that we are not just people who follow Christ, but we are in him. And we pray that we would seek to remain, we would rejoice to remain, and that you would make us fruitful. Father, we thank you too that you are a God of love. And we pray that we as a church, as we love one another, would make your love concrete amongst us. We pray that people might understand more of your love by seeing how we treat one another and those outside. And we ask this, Father, for your great glory that others might come to know how good you are. Amen.